Okay, is everybody ready? Let's, let's do this. Let's pray together, please. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this uh, just gloriously beautiful weather, and we see your uh, creative genius and everything that you made, and uh, we're so thankful that you've given us the scriptures, and we pray you'd help us grow in our understanding of them this evening as we read more of uh, Galatians together and help us to, to value um, the truth and to love the truth and to be thankful unto you for the graciousness of our salvation. And I pray that you'd help us understand uh, what we're going to read this evening and help us to take it into our hearts and to uh, be anchored to it and, and to never be moved from it and to know that these are the fixed and unchanging truths of your holy word. And we pray that we would live in the light of them every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right, we're going to, we left off on Galatians 3, verse 10. But I'd like to back up and just read uh, all of Galatians 3 and just make a couple of comments before we get into verses 10 and following. But there, after, after chapter 2, where he kind of spells out the gospel and what kind of provoked this whole situation with the Judaizing uh, false teaching that was going on there in the Galatian churches. You had individuals saying, yes, we believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. You need to repent. You need to believe in him. But they added circumcision. They added works. They added other things to that to bring it to pass. And Paul kind of summarizing there, look at the last two verses of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside or nullify, some of your translations will say nullify, do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Okay, now, one thing to, to remember is when you see the word righteousness there in Galatians, it's actually the same word for justification. You could translate it as the word justification. So you could translate Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Okay? So why, why is that? If our law-keeping... If our works in some way plays a, plays a role in our justification and our getting into heaven, then Christ died for nothing. What, why does Paul say that? I'm sorry? That's right. That's right. Yep. Okay, because in, in Paul's thinking, always remember this, because I, I just the thing I want you to walk away from Galatians with is, is this simple truth. You cannot mix works with grace and it still be grace. Can't. The moment you add anything to the grace of God, the moment you add anything to faith in Christ as the sole means by which we're made right with God, it's not grace anymore. And in Paul's mind, it's either faith in Christ alone saves us, justifies us, or you have to keep the law all by yourself and pull it off by yourself. And any attempt to mix the two, what does Paul say about that? It's all law or all grace. Think about what the, the last part of, of Galatians says in Galatians 5. I solemnly say to you, if you get circumcised, what? Christ is of no value to you. So, as I've said to you before, Matthew 7, remember Matthew 7, 22 and following, Jesus says, many will come on that day and say, Lord, 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 Lord. Many will say they believed in Jesus, but as soon as you add anything to him, He's of no benefit to you. No matter how much you say you believe in him, he will be of no benefit to you. 
in the mind of the apostles, in the mind of the apostle Paul, it's either Christ does it all through faith alone, or you save yourself by works alone. In any attempt to mix them, Christ is out of the equation. You get to save yourself by your own works. And that's why he says, anyone who relies on, on observing the law is under God's curse. No matter how much they say they believe in Jesus, to the extent they trust in their works, they're, not, they're, they're under God's curse. Yes, sir? I just have a basic question. I've been trying to learn more about this federal vision. Why is it so many Reformed people that were supposedly rooted and grounded and all this stuff, why were they drawn to this? I mean, what is the, what's the part I don't understand how you could even be drawn to it? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. <laughs> why were they drawn to it so much? Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, obviously they weren't. They weren't really. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You wonder how how can they do that? And you should read. There's a book called The Justification Controversy that you guys have heard of. O. Palmer Robertson, the author. He wrote the book Christ of the Covenants, and he wrote he wrote a number of really really good books. He actually did a very detailed historical um, survey of everything that happened at Westminster Seminary, and he wrote that book in 1982. And Covenant Seminary had it suppressed. Yeah, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis suppressed it. And then it was eventually picked up and published by who? Does anyone know? Trinity Foundation. The Trinity Foundation published it under the justification controversy. I remember thinking, he wrote this 20, they, they published it in 2002. But it actually was written in 1982. I remember thinking, what happened? <clears throat> well, the, the book names names, and it, it calls out all these people, all these professors, and you know, all this stuff, that, that, all this chicanery that went on at Westminster Seminary up there. But yeah, you wonder. I, I don't understand. I'm sorry to get you off topic. Yeah, I'm sorry. I will tell you this. I do, I do think this is one thing that led to it, too is there's very serious errors in some of, the, some of their understanding of covenant theology. You started hearing, for example, even John Murray, who's usually seen as a really good Reformed theologian, he started talking about the covenant of works being a gracious covenant. And if you start getting the categories of grace into your covenant of works, it's going to trickle down and destroy your, your understanding of grace later. Like, have you ever heard people say, no, all, all of God's interactions with man are on, on the basis of grace. And including the covenant of, of works is, is basically, it's, it's, it's a gracious thing. And I remember the very first time I ever heard that in seminary. I remember thinking, that is a serious problem. Okay, the covenant, just remember, it's actually, it's actually a lot easier than people make it. The covenant of works is a covenant of works. The covenant of grace is a covenant of grace. As soon as you say the covenant of works is a covenant of grace then you're going to end up having law-keeping in your covenant of grace, thinking that's grace. And that's exactly what they've done. So as good as John Murray was a theologian, he ended up with Yeah. Uh, T. David Gordon, I actually was reading, I've been reading a, a collection of, of essays about the new perspectives and the, the history of the federal vision. It's called Faith Alone. It was edited by Guy Waters. T. David Gordon calls John Murray the Reformed Church's drunk uncle. Yeah. <laughs> that nobody, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I've put a lot of copies of those out there. If you read those, those essays, that'll bring you up to speed on like how we kind of got there. But always remember this. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, here, here's the arrangement God made with him. It's actually really easy to understand. And you see all the parts of this in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Adam was told in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, 
Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Now, implied in that threat for disobedience is the promise of life for obedience. And we know that because all of God's commandments work that way. Anywhere God makes a, a promise um, for obedience, the, the contrary threat is implied. Okay? So when he says, you will surely die, it's also implied, if you obey, you will surely live forever. And we know that that was part of that covenant because what happens at the end of Genesis chapter 3? They're, they're driven out and an angel is posted to do what? Guard the way to what? tree of life lest he put forth his hand and take and eat and live forever so this is i've I've talked to a lot of folks about this and people still get this well but he still needed grace to he still needed grace to be able to 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 keep it i'm like no he didn't unfallen adam doesn't need grace grace is god's response to sin okay if adam had obeyed god and had not succumbed to that temptation he would have earned by pure personal merit and righteousness, the right to eat from the tree of life. Okay, there's no grace involved in this anywhere. In fact, the Westminster Confession says it's not grace that God enters into that first covenant. It's called voluntary condescension. Okay? It's God, yes, God has to initiate it. God voluntarily enters into it, but it's not grace. Okay? And you know who predicted all these errors? 300 years ago, Wilhelmus Abrakel, in his book, um, A Christian's Reasonable Service, look, get, there's the four-volume set up there. You can get it on Kindle. It's a lot easier to navigate if you have it electronically. He has a whole chapter on the covenant of works. And right at the beginning of that, right at the beginning, in fact, I'm going to look it up for you. I like rabbit trails. They're good. <laughs> no, no, but, but seriously, you need to hear this quotation. Um, about the covenant of works. It's so, it's so cool to have this. And they'll, they'll even say that, that Adam fell from your grace. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there, there was no need for it because he hadn't sinned yet. Yeah, so, and others will say, well, we, or Adam needed to have faith, and it, it, was, it was his unbelief that led to his fall. <laughs> that's right. What, what does Romans 5 say? Through the unbelief of the one, many became sinners? What does it say? Through the disobedience of the one many were made sinners not the unbelief and what why why do they do that why do they start talking about faith and unbelief in the covenant of works because they want to get the categories of redemption into that covenant so they can teach their false gospel so these errors that they're they're subtle errors they they trickle back upstream like that but that's that's where they come from but listen to a brockle one thing about this book it's so there it is there it is there's like a billion chapters in it here we go and I know I, I do have it highlighted in here somewhere. What's the name? Abrakel? Wilhelmus Abrakel. Abrakel, yeah. German or Dutch? Dutch, yeah. Um, but he talks about the, the essential, um, how essential it is to get the um, covenant of works right. And if you don't, you're going to have very serious errors. I think instinctively, though, humans are tend to be performance-driven. Oh, without a like doubt. Like everything else in life, which is why I kind of 
it, it's an error for sure, but I kind of understand the reason why they would think like something like federal vision was okay. Um, but again, that's why you preach the gospel so much and remind us all the time that's not our works. Yeah. Because we need that reminder. Yeah. In fact, I... My sermon manuscript I'm working on for Sunday, I keep having to cut out parts of it because my manuscript's getting too long. And I know my sermon this past Sunday was 55 minutes long, and I got home and was like, oh my gosh, those poor people. You didn't and even I'm like, man. <clears throat> but there, there's, I found some really good quotes because Robert Raymond in his systematic theology goes through kind of a history like the church did condemn Pelagianism and condemned any intrusion of merit, I mean, they believe they, they went with Augustine's position. It's unconditional predestination, and that was in 418. In 529, at the Second Council of, of Orange, it's called, they condemned semi-Pelagianism. And so the church actually dealt very decisively with this issue. It's not free will. Man has no part in this. It's unconditional election. But um, Raymond has this great little throwaway line. He says, as much as the church dealt with it decisively, men having Pelagianism in their hearts... It just went underground and subtly would reappear in different places at different times in church history. But listen to Abrakel, his discussion. And remember, this is 300 years before Federal Vision ever comes along. Listen to what he says. <clears throat> in the eighth chapter, we have depicted Adam in his eminent, holy, and glorious nature. We shall now speak of him as being in covenant with God, the covenant of works. Listen. Acquaintance with this covenant is of the greatest importance. For whoever errs here or denies the existence of the covenant of works will not understand the covenant of grace and will readily err concerning the mediatorship of the Lord Jesus. Such a person will very readily deny that Christ, by his active obedience, has merited a right to eternal life for the elect. You hear that? They'll very readily deny that. The joint federal vision statement that you can just Google joint federal vision statement and all their names are on it. They say in there, this is a direct quote, we deny that faithful gospel preaching entails any particular doctrine of the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ. I'm like, he called your, you guys out 300 years ago. He, he saw if you get the covenant of works wrong, you're going to get this wrong too. If you don't understand that Adam needed to be righteous for us, you're not going to understand that Christ, by his obedience, earns the right to eat from the tree of life for us. Okay, listen to what he goes on to say. Let me read that sentence again. Such a person will very readily deny that Christ, by his act of obedience, has merited a right to eternal life for the elect. This is to be observed with several parties who, because they err concerning the covenant of grace, also deny the covenant of works. Conversely, whoever denies the covenant of works must rightly be suspected to be in error concerning the covenant of grace as well. I mean, in like 1730, he said that. And that's exactly the case. These guys, were, they started you know, messing around with the covenant of works and saying, no, it's a gracious covenant. Or some of them just denied it was even there altogether. That it's like, it's not even there. And that all the Bible is just one big giant covenant. Have you ever heard the, the phrase monocovenantalism? Everything's just one big covenant? Like I've, heard, I've heard proponents of that system have told me, well, you can summarize the whole Bible in one word, covenant. And I remember thinking, no, you can't. <laughs> you can describe the whole Bible as covenants. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. The first Adam fails, Christ enters into that broken covenant, keeps it for us. But that's the reason I emphasize that so much, because the scriptures do. 
number one, but because there's so many errors that come in by getting that stuff wrong. But I would also maintain the whole book of Galatians doesn't make any sense if you don't if you don't have those things clean in your in your thinking. So if there's but, only one covenant, then that naturally they would mix law and God. Of course, of course, because what could be more obvious if you say the whole Bible is one covenant of grace? Well, what could be more obvious than the fact that the Bible has commandments in it? So if you think commandments are grace, then being saved would include your obedience to the commandments, right? That's why. What what else does the Federal Vision Joint Statement deny? We deny that there is a distinction between the law and the gospel and scripture. It's all good. It's all good news. I'm like, no, the law, the law's not good news. Um, if you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, it's not. Now, once you're redeemed, once you're saved, yeah, the law is no longer condemning you. The law is your father's instruction. Here's how I show my gratitude to God. But, I mean, you look at that joint statement, and it's like, boom, 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 boom. They get covenant works wrong. They get the imputation of Christ's righteousness wrong. Law gospel distinction wrong. Okay, Their covenant theology is messed up. That's where, where it all comes from. Yes, sir? Um, where it gets confusing with Murray is, didn't he write that commentary on Romans? He did. His commentary on Romans is actually really good. <laughs> Not that I noticed, because I read it when I was doing my sermons. But I've always had an, I've always kind of had this mental note. You gotta be careful with him. That I I don't know. I don't know. Anyone here ever read Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray? It's a great book. I mean, you would never you don't detect any of that in there. I mean, he's he's really good. Which makes it confusing. It does. It is confusing. Well, maybe in Scotland, maybe he really was drunk. Yeah, the drunk Scotsman. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, but those are those are good questions. But yeah, that I don't I don't know what what the draw was was to it. But yes, I'm. Um, uh, the word for justification is not dikaiosune. It's same word family, but the word justification as that word only occurs three times in the New Testament. The noun. The noun. It's dikaiosis uh, or dikaioma. Okay, dikaioma. Dikaioma has. Broader meaning, it could be ordinance, requirement, or righteousness. Right. Whereas um, the other one, dikai, that dikaiosis, is only given justification as a definition. Oh, really? Okay. Dikaiosune is uh, righteousness, and it occurs how many times, Steve? 26 times in the New Testament. What form of, of is, is using Galatians 2.21? Um, that's. that's the Kaisune. The Kaisune, okay. Good. Good. That is how I remembered that one. <laughs> right. Yeah. They have a wide, I mean, there's a wide range of usages, but the context will, you know, will tell you how, how it's being used. But, okay, good, very good question. So, Paul, so once he gets done kind of spelling out, guys, if, you, if you're going to add works to the gospel, you're saying that what Christ did is not enough. And then he gets kind of mad. Look at the opening verse of, of Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. And that's really a pretty nice rendering of, of what he actually says there. He's, he's being kind of like, what's wrong with you? <clears throat> Who has bewitched you? He uses that, that witchcraft term. Who has be, who's put you under a spell that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? And isn't that interesting? Just simply saying, I preached him as crucified, that should have told you your works play no role in this. <laughs> 
Like I used to wonder, why, does, why is that an argument he's using here? Well, the fact that I preached him as crucified, that is an argument against your works doing anything. I preach that this is what saves you, not anything you do. Okay, look at verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see how you can't mix the two things in his thinking? It's by your works or by believing. It's one or the other. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Remember I mentioned to you, verse 3 there, that verse by itself really refutes pretty much every error that you ever hear on, on the gospel. Because everyone will say, well, you start out by grace, you're, you're in by grace, and then you, you're finally saved by your works. N.T. Wright teaches that. You, know, you, you hear that in many different forms uh, today. But it's not you start by faith and, and grace, and then you're, you're saved by works. It's by faith from first to last. It's Christ's righteousness from the beginning to the end. So what you trust in the day you're converted is what you're trusting in five minutes before you draw your final breath. It's always Christ and only Christ. And then he even says, verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Why does he say that to them? All their suffering for persecution. If they don't have the true gospel, what good is it? It's useless. Okay. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now, now notice that. He uses that expression, those who are of faith and those who are of the works of the law. Okay, If you're of faith, that means you're relying on Christ alone to get you into heaven. If you're a person who's of the works of the law, you're relying on your works, on what you've done. Okay, Verse 8, in the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Okay, Not those who are of works, but those who are of faith. Okay, now we come to verse 10, and here, this is a really important part of, of the book of Galatians. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Okay, you hear that? So, what, so answer the question. What does he mean, as many as are of the works of the law? Who's that talking about? Anyone relying on their works? And it includes anyone who says they believe in Jesus and is also relying on works. They are of the works of the law too. You can't mix these two things. You know, this one thing, I emphasize to you guys all the time the, the importance of our great you know, Westminster Standards and the Reformed Confessions. The Belgic Confession is another one. Has anyone here ever read the Belgic Confession? It's a great doctrinal statement. And I wanted to read to you, um, I have the... One of the cool apps is iReformed. Anyone here have the iReformed app? It's free. It has like all the Reformed confessions on it with all of the proof text and everything. But um, I wanted to read to you. Uh, have it for those of us who don't have iPhones at well. It's just <laughs> called Reformed Companion. Reformed Companion. That's cool. Okay, listen to this. Article 22, our justification through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, 
that then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, therefore to assert, wait a minute. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him would be too gross a blasphemy. For hence it would follow that Christ was but half a savior. Isn't that great? Right on the money. It's either he does it all and does it perfectly, or you're blaspheming him. Okay, that's how I love how clear these these guys were in their thinking on on these issues. Okay, so the message of God's law and that passage there is quoting from where when he says, "Curses everyone who does not continue in all things certain in the book of the law to do them." Where's that from? Deuteronomy what? Yeah, right at the tail end of Deuteronomy. And of course, what is the book of Deuteronomy about? What does the title of the book mean, Deuteronomy? The second law. Okay, this is like a reiteration of the law. This is Moses really pleading with the people of Israel, you know, please be obedient when you go in there or do what God tells you to do. He spells out the curses for disobedience, the, the blessings for obedience. But the summation of the law is you're cursed if you don't do everything in it. Okay, so that's always going to be bad news to us, right? Yes, sir. Correct me if I'm wrong. It could be. Is there a sense in which salvation is spoken out of the past tense, present tense, future tense? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that where Piper, guys like Piper, get it wrong? It, and Rome and many others that have no sensitivity to context, sure. You're being saved, mm-hmm. saved and yeah. you will be saved. So. Yeah, I've heard that from dozens of Roman Catholic apologists over the years. Well, the Bible says that you've been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. That doesn't mean that it's a process. Um, like, there's a, there's a sense in which all salvation is eschatological. Okay, like, no, none of us are right now in heaven, right? But we've been declared righteous, and we've been justified once for all. Romans 3.24 says, um, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. A present participle is used there. But that's just stating a general truth. Every, in other words, everyone that is justified is justified as a gift by his grace. It's not saying we are experiencing a process of justification or anything like that. Can you see where people get confused by that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, once a person believes, they, once they've been justified, they shall be saved from wrath through him. You see the, the future tense and the past tense used in one verse in Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been, been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Okay, it doesn't mean it's a process. It means that once this declaration takes place, it's a guaranteed thing that at the end of time, we, we will be saved when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Okay, so... All right. Okay, look at verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Okay, so in other words, the message of the law is do this and you will live. That's what the law says to the world. And of course, the problem is what? (laughs) Yeah, nobody does it. Nobody does the law, except who? Christ. Jesus enters into it, keeps it all perfectly. He fulfills its righteous requirement for us. And then verse 13 is one of the most glorious verses in the whole Bible. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
So when you think about, you know, Deuteronomy, you know, guys know what I'm talking about when you have De Deuteronomy 27 and 28, where you have the covenant curses. Curses everyone who does this. Remember the people were supposed to shout amen as these things were read over and over and over again in Deuteronomy? That curse for all of our disobedience, it falls on the Lord Jesus at the cross. That's what's happening there. He's being cursed because we don't continue in all things that are written in the book of the law. Okay, always remember that. Deuteronomy, what is it, 27 verse 26, that's quoted in verse 10. Curses everyone who doesn't continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. All of God's elect people do not continue in all things in the book of the law to do them. So Christ is cursed in our place and in our stead. Okay, and I'll, I'll tell you just on a, as a personal testimony. Verse 13 here was, was what finally turned the tide uh, for me to believe in a particular redemption or definite atonement. Limited atonement. Um, Leon Morris. Anyone here ever read anything by Leon Morris? He's, he wrote The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross and another book. Uh, the abridged version of that called The Atonement, Its Meaning and Significance. Any Bible dictionaries you ever get, the articles on the atonement or on the cross will always be written by Leon Morris because he was like the greatest scholar ever on, on that topic. The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, I think it was written in 1954. One book of the year that year. It's just a, it's a, I'm sorry? It's just a bunch of word studies of all the key terms related to the cross, like uh, ransom and uh, redemption and uh, reconciliation. And he goes through Galatians 3.13 and points out there's nothing hypothetical about this. That what Christ did at the cross, he actually redeemed everyone he died for. They cannot possibly ever be cursed for their sins. I remember going through this and then looking at other usages of the terms. And, of course, Morris, one of the reasons they actually printed an abridged version of the larger one, he brings in every reference from contemporary culture that, that around that time period so you can see how the terms are being used. And it's just as clear as I'm getting the chills thinking about it. It's just as clear as it can be. Everyone Jesus did this for is going to heaven. That's all there is to it. They cannot possibly be cursed because Christ has redeemed them from the curse by becoming a curse in their place. And so it's a glorious verse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. I remember I was sitting in the lobby um, of the, uh, the Weston Hotel, which was connected to U.S. Bank, and I would go over there because it was quiet, and I would go over there and read on my lunch hour and just sat there reading that and reread those paragraphs by Leon Morris and, and just kept looking at verse 13 going, man, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, he did hang on a tree. He was cursed. Everyone he did that for is redeemed then. It's, there's no way around it. Verse 14, in order that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, so there you have the, the contrast between the law and the gospel there. Okay, the law brings about wrath. The law brings about condemnation. And the gospel is what brings about our redemption from the curse. Okay, now verse 15 and following, critical key passage here. And this is something the Jewish people, especially at the time of, of the writing of this, did not seem to understand. And it's very important for us to get this. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Okay, now what, what does he mean there? Like, think about if you've ever bought a house or, or had to sign a big contract. Once all the terms are agreed upon by all the parties and it's signed, can someone arbitrarily come along later and start adding stuff to it or deleting things from it? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater here. He's pointing out 
when men make promises or covenants or enter into contractual agreements, once they've agreed to the terms, no one annuls or adds to it, right? And his point is, the Jewish people looked to the law as being a source of their salvation, as if it had changed the nature of the promise. But God made an unconditional promise to Abraham 430 years before that. And the Jewish people at the time of Christ should have looked to that promise God made Abraham, not to the law, as being the way that they were going to be right with God. Okay, so look at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he does not say, and to seed as of many, many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Okay, so there, that citation is from where? Do you see there in your footnotes? Does anyone see? Let's see. What is it? Yeah, Genesis 22, and that's exactly what it says. It doesn't say into your seeds, but to your seed. So it's actually talking about Christ, the, the Messiah, the seed of the woman that would come later. Verse 17, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. And, and dear, dear ones, this is why you've got to make a distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the Sinaitic covenant. You know, often you'll hear people conflate the two covenants and treat them as if they're one. You can't do that. Okay, the, the Abrahamic covenant is like the unconditional promise. Now, the Sinaitic covenant is gracious in the sense that it doesn't change the nature of the gospel. But God puts the law in there and with, with that caveat, do this and you will live. Because that's kind of like the, co- the covenant of works. That, that's what it meant all along. It's not a republication of the covenant of works. It's not a reenacting of it. It's simply God stating um, this is how you're to show that you are my people uh, and be sanctified. Yes, sir? Genesis 3.15, is that technically the beginning of what we refer to as the covenant of grace? Or? It's the beginning of the uh, in space and time manifestation of it, yes. Uh-huh. First promise. Yes. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, yeah. And that's why I think, I think we can say that Adam and Eve were believers, and that so was Seth, and so was that line down to Noah, they did understand that one day um, a redeemer would come. They didn't know anywhere near as much about him as we do, and Abraham didn't either. But they knew that the curse would be lifted in him, that all the nations would be blessed. Remember, there's, all, there's in the Old Testament, and even for us, there's blessing and there's curse. You're either blessed or you're cursed. But Abraham knew somehow one of my, through one of my descendants, we're all going to be blessed. Okay? So it goes way beyond Abraham. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Back to the very garden itself, that's right. And people, <laughs> scholars call that the proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel is right there in Genesis 3. And really, as, I, as I've mentioned to you before, that sets the tone for the rest of human history because you have that enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's why it, it, it never makes any sense. When the church tries to appeal to the unbelieving world or try to be liked by the unbelieving world, We've, we've already been told by, by God, and you see it played out throughout the rest of biblical history and church history, the world hates the church. I mean, what, did, what does Cain do to his brother? He killed him. What, what does the Egyptian pharaoh do to, the, to all those male children in Israel? Murders. I mean, there's blood and murder and hate following the church all the way through history. You know, Satan is following that genealogical line, trying to snuff it out and cut it off. You know, when, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem and Herod, what does Herod do? It sends forth out order, kill everybody in the whole area. And so you just got to recognize, yes, we want to try to win the world to Christ, 
but we don't win the world to Christ by becoming like them. And you know, it's just not gonna it's not gonna work. And there's got to be antithesis. You have to we have to be willing to stand up and say, "No, this is wrong, and this is evil, and you need to repent." And do you really think you know there's an eternal barbecue pit and we're all gonna rot there? Yes, I do. And yes, you are going there if you don't repent and believe. Well, that's that's stupid. That's ridiculous. You know, you you, you have to stand and take that. Okay. Until the, you know, Lord willing, great revival happens and God really convicts people of sin, you know, the church is going to be disliked. It's going to be hated, as, as a matter of fact. And I remember looking those terms up you know, when I was in seminary, that leading noun there in um, Genesis 3.15, the very first word in the verse is the, the Hebrew um, word eva, which means hatred with a desire to kill. Enmity I will put between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And you see that throughout the rest of history. There's the... The unbelieving world despises the church, just really despises it. So, all right, <clears throat> look at verse um, 18. For if the inheritance is of the law, in other words, from works, it's no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see, you see the contrast again? It's either of the law or of, or of promise. It's one or the other. It can never be both. It can never be both. Okay, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. (laughs) Now, I I will tell you, those two verses, verses 19 and 20, have generated a million interpretations. As far as the stuff about angels, you know, I was looking at Hendrickson and Kistemacher and, and through the years I've seen lots of different things. There's, other references to angels being involved in, in the giving of the law and things like that, it's hard to say for sure exactly what he's referring to there. Verse 20, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. I think what that's probably getting at is the Jewish people, these opponents, these Judaizing teachers, they tended to exalt Moses. Moses was the old covenant mediator, but we should not exalt him because he is just a mediator. We should look to the God who is one. Okay. In fact, when I was reading um, Hendrickson and Kistermacher, they said they say about verse twenty, rather than than run through the four hundred and thirty interpretations of this, we'll just tell you the one that we're pretty sure is right. <laughs> so, all right, look at verse twenty-one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, okay? meaning in our own personal lives. Once we come to know Christ, the law is no longer um, playing that role um, in us per se. Now, do you see the, the burden he's, he's trying to answer here? He was asked all the time. So, okay, so Paul, nobody can keep, you're, you're telling us, think of like Pharisees and like really religious Jewish people. So you're telling us the law, nobody can keep it, and we can't be justified by it, and our works play no role in getting us into heaven. Well, what's the point then? What, what is the law there for? And he, do you see what he says it's there for? It's to show you how much you need Christ. That's the whole reason. That's the main reason it was given, was to show you your sin. Okay? And that's what it always does. And if we really do understand the law, then, then we know that. Yes, sir? 
Would you say uh, that the law could be used to judge your progress in sanctification? Yes, definitely. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. In fact, like the, the Heidelberg Catechism, which you guys know I, I like the Heidelberg Catechism, um, points out that once a person is justified before God, the law, the law does not curse them anymore. It never will again. It, it convicts them of their sins and shows them how much they need Christ all the time. But we're freed from the curse always. And now we look to the law as fatherly instruction to his adopted children. Now I look to the law and say, okay, here's how I can please God now. Here's how I express my gratitude to God for his salvation that he gave me. Not how I save myself, but just how I thank God. And yeah, we should always measure our progress by God's law, by God's commandments. Not, not the laws we make up, but, but God's actual laws. <laughs> yeah. Because when, when churches have blue laws, then those tend to be, like the laws people make up are always easier to follow than God's actual law. Like I can stay away from alcohol and tobacco and playing cards and whatever. Loving my wife like Christ loves the church, that's a whole different ballgame. You know, love, you, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, those are, the, those are the real challenges. So, okay, I think we're at a good stopping point. Anyone have any comments or questions? It's glorious stuff. I'm sorry? As far as the Greek New Testament, yourself and Julia elaborate on this. This word tutor in the Greek New Testament, could you pedagogos yeah yeah well we we learned about that when i was in seminary that term pedagogos i don't think that occurs very often does it julia is that a hot box is that the only place that occurs this is where we get the the english word pedagogy like can't, that that you hired like it's depicted in greek art as the, a man with a long stick that followed your kids around and if they ever got out of the line he would smack them with it so that's kind of what the law does. The law just smacks us constantly because we, we break it all the time. So, yep. Pe pedagogos. Okay, any other, any other thoughts or, or comments? So, yes, sir. So where it says the law is, then, uh, is the law in contrary to the promises of God and never be. So it's, it's not, therefore it's not contrary to the promises because it leads us to that's right. Now you look at it, it's like it shuts us up on our sin. So we have to realize then that we have no hope except for a gracious promise of God that we can then save us in that sense of Right. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Yeah. He's, he's not saying, he's, he's not saying the, the law isn't against the promises of God because it's part of them or something like that. He's saying it has this distinct role, to our tutor, our, our guy with a big stick that, that pushes us to seek justification in Christ and the righteousness of someone else. Pedagogos is? Where, where else is it used? Galatians 3.24 and 3.25. Okay, twice there. Romans 4, 15. If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would have you would not have many fathers. You mean is that that's Second Corinthians, isn't it? That's not Romans, is it? Oh right, First Corinthians four fifteen. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, so you don't have many tutors in Christ, okay, yeah. Okay. Yep. But that's a really that's a very vivid term. But that's the way the law there's a sense in which it's always our tutor driving us to trust in Christ alone. So I mean, have any of you noticed that even as you do grow in holiness and you do grow past, you know, you don't, you don't struggle with certain sins as much, have you ever noticed your, your sense of satisfaction with how well you're doing doesn't actually get that much greater? Like you actually get kind of more disgusted with yourself as time goes on? Yeah. 
that's why I like Christian biography and church history because like Augustine and others, like as godly as some of these people were, they were very unhappy with themselves with how well they were doing in their mm-hmm. spiritual life. And yeah. And you look back years later, like how was I ever okay with that? And yeah. But yeah, we should always you look look to the law as to this is how I'm supposed to live and think and behave. But but you know you always fall short of it. You you always do. So and nevertheless, like the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, has a great pastoral thing in it where it says, okay, um, if we all if we know we can never keep these, you know, why does God want them preached so vigorously? And it's, it's that we might intend all the more intensely long for Christ and His righteousness. But then they add, nevertheless. Those that are converted will, with all seriousness of heart, begin to obey not just some but all of God's commandments. They they will start that progress of sanctification. God really does help us be obedient, but even our our best obedience um, as Christians cannot merit pardon of sin and, and cannot withstand the severity of God's judgment. That's the way the Westminster Standards put it. So, okay. Any other thoughts or comments? Good, good discussion. I appreciate you guys, y'all's um, insights and, and comments. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time again to be together. Thank you so much for your word and for what it teaches us. We thank you that your law uh, has shown us our sin and that we see, we see the need that we have for the shed blood to satisfy for our sins and the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus in the place of our disobedience and our unrighteousness. And yet, Lord, we want to be more godly. We want to be more like Christ, and we want to make more progress, help us to, um, to not neglect the means of our own growth in the daily study of Scripture and prayer and fellowship with one another. And I thank you for each person who's here, and we pray that you'd help us to always encourage and edify one another as best we can so that we walk in your ways and love you and believe the truth. And may we always rely on Christ alone for the whole of our salvation and never ever nullify the grace of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.